This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of the Institute of the Americas and the UC San Diego School for Global Policy and Strategy, we want to welcome you to this um, afternoon program um, entitled Expanding North American Cooperation um, in Light of Changing Geopolitics. Um, our um, session today comes um, after two days of meetings of the North American Forum, which you'll hear more about in a bit. Um, the goal of the North American Forum is really to try to bring our three countries together towards building an action plan in light of many of the changes uh, in geopolitics and challenges that we face um, in North America today. Um, we, um, we enacted um, and put into force the USMCA in July of 2020 in the midst of COVID. Our country has experienced um, shutdowns at our border, supply chain challenges as we started to confront the, the challenges of COVID. Um, we are um, now in a world where we have um, changes because of the war in Ukraine. And we also have trade tensions with China. That's causing many of us to think about opportunities for bringing industry closer to home, opportunities for nearshoring. At the same time, we're facing serious challenges related to climate change. Here in San Diego, we are facing challenges related to water security. We're now talking to Mexico about how we were going to allocate water on our border. We have challenges with food security, energy security. We also have serious challenges related to, to regional security. Uh, in the case of the U.S.-Canadian relationship, we have challenges in the Arctic. Here on the border, we're, we're very familiar with some of the ch growing uh, challenges of security related to narco violence, but also the challenges of migration, which are only going to become more pronounced because of climate change. So we'll hear more about um, this in a bit, but um, first I want to thank the sponsor of this public forum, Steve Williams and Century Partners. So Steve, thank you so much for your support. Um, I also want to thank UCTV for making this program possible. Um, at this time, I would like to um, introduce you uh, Tom Long, who is a professor from the University of Warwick in the UK. He's a graduate of uh, the Univers American University, where he got his PhD. He was an understudy of Robert Pasteur, who really was really the thought leader behind the North American agenda. He was someone who many of us have had a chance to work with over the years, and um, Tom was one of his last students before he passed away. So at this time, it gives me great pleasure to um, introduce Tom Long, who will talk about his book, um, North America 2.0, Forging a Continental Future, which he co-edited with uh, a San Diegan that we man many of us know, uh, Alan Burson, who um, is also someone who is very committed to the North American project. So Tom, take it away. Thank you for that introduction and thank you for the opportunity to, to be here today uh, to talk about this, uh, this new book, which, um, and I'll, I'll lay out a little bit of, of what's in it, as well as trying to set the stage for why I, I think this is an important moment to be talking about North America as, as we've been doing for the last uh, two days and as, as the other esteemed panelists are, are going to be, be doing uh, over the next hour. Um, I want to uh, 
thanks, uh, send my, give my thanks to Richard uh, and, and to, to Dean Carolyn Freund, um, to the sponsors for these, this event and to the Institute of the Americas. I also want to mention that Alan, uh, my co-editor on this, would very much like to be here um, and unfortunately is, is, is on the East Coast. Um, but he, he sends his regards and, and his, his thanks. Uh, this volume uh, that I'll be talking about was also uh, supported by the Woodrow Wilson Center. So, so thanks to the Wilson Center, uh, to Harvard's Belfer Center, and to Aspen, Mexico, um, uh, amongst, amongst other institutions. Um, also a huge thanks, I should say, to the contributors of this volume, as I'll, as I'll talk about. It covers 16 different areas, 16 different issues for North America, um, with experts from the three countries and beyond uh, putting on the table their experiences, in those issues, making an argument for why North America matters to how we address them, uh, and offering, I think, some really concrete solutions or, or initiatives uh, that, that we might consider, that our leaders might consider, particularly in the context of the coming North American uh, Leaders Summit, which was expected for, for December. It looks like it may now be, be January. Um, but, but that's a little bit what we're trying to, to, to put on the table. This book, I should say, um, seeks to illuminate some of those challenges but for the Nalls, but it comes from a much longer period of gestation. The project initially started in 2017 uh, as a response to a very different type of environment, of course, right? An, an existential threat to North America as we know it uh, from the Trump administration's calls to tear up NAFTA and to the very real implementation of, of tariffs against Canada and Mexico. As the project evolved, we faced new threats, which Richard already alluded to. That is, uh, that is the, the pandemic, now a changing geopolitical context, um, and the continued disruption of, of, of supply chains. Uh, However, I think that there's a moment to look at these, this conjuncture of crisis, in a sense, uh, as an opportunity for, for the region. But first, I want to talk a little bit about North America and the world, because North America amongst world regions, I think, is to some extent uh, a region that is overlooked. While summits of world leaders elsewhere are often, often attract headlines and bright lights, in North America, we've sometimes forgotten our, our summit. It's fallen off the calendar for years at a time. It's, when it's on the calendar, I think it often doesn't get the attention that it needs and, and merits. When we talk about sort of the academic study of regions, I come from international relations, North America was a key example of regionalism in the 1990s, and now it's mostly in the footnotes. If we look at the more formal institutional setting for the study of regions, this is, not, this is just one example, sort of uh, academic uh, centers that are funded by the Department of, of Education, National Resource Centers, we don't fund centers on North America. And indeed, while there are centers uh, 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 throughout the region uh, about re other regions all over the world, there are only a handful that are really focused on the study of, of North America. Um, and I think that this relative absence of North America as a region from how we understand the world presents something of a paradox. 
Because if we see North America by its, region, its, by its levels of, of social integration, economic integration, trade and investment, uh, it's as dynamic as any region in the world. But if we only look at the actions and words of, of our leaders, North America barely exists. Uh, Oxford's Andrew Hurl, a, a professor of international relations, wrote some 15 years ago that North America is, quote, a region that dare not speak its name. And I think Andy's observation is even more prescient today that we have a central pact for North America that, of course, no longer includes uh, the words North America or trade, I, w I would note, uh, and that we call something different in each of, of, the, three, of the three countries. So the other side of this paradox, however, is that even though North America is in some ways overlooked by our political leaders, it is a tremendous weight in the world, and it's a tremendous presence in the lives of, I think, nearly everyone who lives in, in North America. Right? So North America uh, has one of the largest regional economies, uh, on par with the, the, newly created, uh, the newly created Asian, Asian, Asian agreement, um, but I think is much, much more integrated in some ways. So it's a, a, an enormous global presence. Of course, North America has seen a tremendous increase in trade. So these are just uh, combined export and imports for all, all, all three countries uh, uh, in goods and services since NAFTA went into effect, essentially. And we have trade uh, increasing nearly, nearly six times. Uh, I'm sorry, total North American trade uh, roughly triples. And as I'll show, investment goes even, even higher. This is probably a case that needs to be made in national capitals, but maybe much less so here in, in San Diego. Because the, the transformative effect of, of North America for the economy in San Diego is, is very clear. Um, we have a tremendous increase. This is, is trade, uh, trade in, in San Diego. And we also have a really quick bounce back after the dip of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have trade acting as a, a crucial driver for the, the regional economy here, uh, as well as, I think, for the, the economies of, of the three uh, countries more broadly. So trade amongst North American countries in goods, and in goods alone uh, totals about $1.2 trillion a year. Um, but the commercial connections are even more profound than that figure might suggest. Uh, so here you can see the United States accounting for about three-quarters of the exports of Canada, about three-quarters of the exports of, of Mexico. Uh, the United States, as the largest economy, also has a somewhat more diversified export profile. But we're still talking about 33% uh, about of, of U.S. exports going to our two neighboring countries. And as I'll talk about a little bit more, the nature of those exports is also very important for, for all three uh, economies. We also, saw, uh, we also saw investment take off um, in the period since, since NAFTA. So we have, uh, we have a really nearly exponential increase in investment after, after NAFTA. So this all seems like a pretty good news story, right? And in, in a lot of ways it is, but I think when we focus on and argue uh, about North America, 
over, from the point of view of these macroeconomic figures, it's not really enough. We have to go beyond that in making the case for North America. And when we look forward to the future of North America, we need to think much more about the ways that we can build on this cooperation in other facets of the relationship, that we can drive more inclusive and sustainable forms of growth. And that's what I want to get to in this, in this current moment. But if you'll indulge me, I want to speak a little bit about the progress of, of, uh, of North America and how I think that matters for understanding where the region is today. The origin story of North America, its inception is, is, is pretty well known, and I don't want to, to belabor the, the point too much, but it's important, I think, to step back from the creation of first the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement in, in the late 1980s, and then the negotiation of the North American free trade agreement in the 1990s, and think a little bit about the global context in which that happened. to understand how this relates perhaps to the global context that we're facing today. Because North America comes into being in a period of traditional global global change. Sorry, of tremendous global change. A period in which we have the fall of the Berlin Wall, but also rapid increasing integration of Europe. You have North American leaders, and actually uh, Carlos Salinas was perhaps most explicit about this, looking out at the world and saying, it looks like there is a a formation of regional blocs and Mexico does not want to be left out. Salinas talks about this um, in, in the early 1990s. There's another element that I think is really important. In addition to this, uh, this sort of convergence of, of econo- uh, this convergence of, of, of opportunity at the global level, and that's a convergence of ideas amongst the three countries. Uh, we have a period in which there is a relatively strong consensus around ideas of free trade. And that's, of course, where, where NAFTA focuses, uh, though, of course, not necessarily a convergence of ideas and interests on all other issues. So what we end up with, in a sense, is a North American free trade agreement that is written compared to a lot of other trade agreements. It's a, something of a closed contract. Right? It is an agreement that does not come with institutional structures meant to update it bit by bit. Right? And this uh, becomes important in the evolution of, of, uh, of North America. But for whatever flaws it might have, the North American Free Trade Agreement clearly sets off a boom. Right? That first picture I showed of trade just skyrocketing, uh, a lot of that owes to North America. Uh, to the North American Free Trade Agreement. It also sets off, as I mentioned, a somewhat different type of trade. That is, as the phrase often goes, instead of just trading goods, finished goods across services, North America becomes very good at building things together. This is perhaps clearest in in the auto sector, um, but that's hardly the the only case. So we get, during this boom period, the groundwork laid for a really integrated system of North American production. And this remains in many ways the the core of of North America. Um, We can see that here, um, where we see the degree of North American trade that is in intermediate goods, right? So goods that are being sent back and forth before before becoming the final product that, that goes to market. And that's generally been about uh, about half 
of, of North America's trade. And um, this has shifted somewhat because in some industries there has been a much greater influx of, uh, of intermediate components from, from, from Asia. Right? So we have this boom period in which North America starts to grow together, uh, becomes in some ways also quite aligned at a macroeconomic level, uh, and, and starts to build together. However, we don't get uh, a lot of institutional updating. This period, this boom period, gives way to a period that I think is sort of slower growth in North American integration, at least compared to, to global levels of trade. Uh, drift institutionally, that is, North American institutions stay relatively the, the same. There are some attempts to update them that, that mostly fall short. And in this period, building backlash. And of course, we all know where, where that backlash ends up. But just to give you a real quick sense of, of what this looks like, this is a chart that just shows the degree of North America's trade, total trade, that happens within the region compared to, to other regions. North America is, is the blue line there. And so after the implementation of NAFTA, Trade within North America becomes more important to all three countries as a part of their total trade. Right? And this is sort of a characteristic sign of economic regionalization. However, that starts to shift in this period. Uh, first of all, we, we have two major events happening, really. One is, of course, the September 11th attacks do a couple of things. One, they lead to thickening of, of the borders making trade across those borders slower and more expensive. And secondly, uh, they, we have uh, the United States diverting much of its policy attention uh, farther afield and spending less time attending to, to the neighborhood. At about that same time, China enters the World Trade Organization, and the combination of these factors I think leads to a tremendous shift. We have an, an enormous boom in Chinese trade, and at the same time, a relative stagnation in the North American institutional uh, in, environment. So, na in, in the words of, a, of another scholar, China becomes, quote, NAFTA's uninvited guest. Uh, we see uh, an interruption, in a sense, of the consolidation of these North American platforms. We see, here's just a, a figure to show how dramatically uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese exports grow as a percentage of all world exports. And in that same period, the, the level to which North America's exports start to, to, to slip. Okay. But I don't want to, uh, to, to sort of leave this on, on, uh, on, on a sour note because we get a period of crisis, as we all know, under the Trump administration. We get a renegotiation of NAFTA into the USMCA in conditions that I think it's important to highlight are hardly ideal and, and self-inflicted in, in some ways um, that make things very difficult for our neighbors and that reduce the confidence that the United States is going to hold up consistently. It's part of the bargain. Uh, we also get the introduction of a sunset clause that throws further uncertainty into the North American equation moving down the line. We also get a few 
positives. Um, we get the integration of an environment chapter into the text of the USMCA instead of as a side agreement. And we get a chapter on digital trade, which is an important modernization of, of, uh, of, of the North American framework in a period when uh, in which, of course, digital trade was, is, continues to, to absolutely uh, take off. So in today's moment, then, I think we have an opportunity for renewal. And this is, in a sense, the, the agenda to which uh, the book North America 2.0 uh, seeks, to, seeks to respond. Um, of course, we have the, the pandemic, the uneven cooperation there, some, some, some successes, some, some failures. We have a period still in which supply chains are incredibly disrupted, um, in which the United States and China uh, are perhaps as of yesterday, sorting out some issues, but we clearly have a major increase in intentions, uh, people talking about decoupling, nearshoring, friendshoring, etc. And we have an urgent need to, to take action on an energy tri transition uh, and, and on, on climate change. Together, what I think these factors do is uh, create an environment in which capital and business and, I hope, governments with a longer-term strategic vision are taking a slightly different approach. That is, instead of looking to globalization simply for lower costs, political stability, and above all, returns, those concerns will continue to be present, but will also be uh, coupled with a different idea about what stability might look like, in which resilience of supply chains matters more. And in some sectors, proximity might matter more. And clearly, I think a focus from the administration now on identifying certain strategic sectors uh, where it is advantageous for the United States to have more elements of production closer to home. So the book, as I mentioned, responds to this by looking across 16 different uh, issue areas, so I won't be going through those in, in any detail, but I do just want to give you a quick sense of what some of, of them are and one example of, of how, uh, how I think they, they fit together. So there are, for example, an assessment of, uh, of, of, of the USMCA and its implications by Yunu Manik, who's at the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, excellent, an excellent chapter on uh, migration, but also the importance of migration in terms of labor mobility, um, borders, looking at energy integration, uh, looking at the ways in which North America might cooperate more effectively uh, on the environment, in, uh, emergency management, um, so a whole, a whole host of, of, of issues across three different sections of, of the book. One example that I, I want to, to talk about is the ways in which we might continue to build on North America's strength of a shared production platform and our robust ties. North America has uh, often relied on the private sector to drive integration, to build the region, and, as we saw under the Trump administration, to defend the idea of the region in times of crisis. And that will continue to be crucial, but I also think we need to spur greater political leadership. 
So if we, for example, look at the role of North America in global value chains and think about how we might preserve and extend North American leadership of global value chains, what I think we see is uh, the need for government to create an environment and make certain investments that that, cre- that, that, that allow the private sector to, to do that, right? North America has traditionally been a leader of global value chains. And by that, I mean occupying the highest value rungs in a lot of, of global production. However, the, that role is increasingly challenged by, by other parts of, of the world. Um, and so to protect that, I think what the sorts of strategic action that we need is, one, to have greater lo- labor mobility, to take advantage of, of, uh, of, uh, of the, the region's demographic advantages, but also to coordinate questions of work source, workforce development, for example, to increase the ability of workers to move to places where there are opportunities and then to give them the right skills to, to fill those opportunities. So that's something that a couple of our, our chapters uh, really, really focus on. I also think that we need to uh, conceive the region at times in a slightly broader way, to open the aperture, as, as Richard Feinberg has said, to think of the ways in which other parts of the hemisphere might plug into those value chains and help support North America, sort of a, an idea of a, of a greater uh, North America. I also think that it's, it's important on those who support an idea of North America and our leaders to start speaking about North America. One could say that perhaps the absence of talking about North America doesn't really matter. That is, uh, the region has great economic heft, trade, investment, all of those, all of those things. But without defenders who are willing to talk about the region, uh, who are willing to promote an idea of how North America matters to our country's positions in the world, I think North America is going to continue to be blamed for a lot of the real problems that exist, uh, but without receiving much credit for the benefits that it, it generates. So I would argue that we should start by highlighting and building upon the ties that we have We need to press for the North American Leaders Summit to be a consistent priority, and we need to build ties not only amongst governance, but also between the NALs and civil society, the private sector, um, and, 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 and beyond. Um, with that, I'll go ahead and close. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity, and, um, and, and uh, I appreciate the chance to be here. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Tom. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you uh, Carolyn Freund, the Dean of the School for Global Policy and Strategy here at UC San Diego, um, who will be introducing our distinguished panel of, um, of ambassadors um, and representatives from the U.S., Canada, and Mexico uh, to talk about why North America matters and the North American Forum. Carolyn? Thanks. I think I'll just uh, stay here with, along with the panel. Um, I'm first going to put it in a little bit of context, and then I'll introduce the speakers. So I think, actually, Tom did a great job of setting the stage uh, for North America, but it really was a worldwide phenomenon, what was going on during that period 
of globalization. So NAFTA wasn't alone in being formed. We had the European single market. We had the expansion of the EU. We had China joining the W, opening up first and ultimately joining the WTO. Um, and we, even the formation of the WTO, the completion of the Uruguay round, et cetera, et cetera. So it was this period of hyper-globalization from 1990 to 2008 where trade was growing twice as fast as income. It was really unprecedented. Um, but following the financial crisis, there was a period of stagnation, but not reversal. Trade just sort of slow growth, slow global growth, slow trade growth. It just sort of stagnated. And then came this following period of chaos that affected NAFTA as well. So I think Brexit was probably the, the, the first uh, realization that something was wrong when that vote went a different way than everyone expected. Then China-U.S. tensions really increased under Trump. Then we had the COVID supply chain disruptions and a fear of globalization. Uh, the renegotiation of the NAFTA, which ultimately survived as the USMCA. But I think for all the improvements that came, the risk of it being destroyed, that effect on investment was probably far greater on the negative than any positive from the renegotiation. So that's the environment where we come in to the North American Forum. And what we're trying to do is uh, reinvigorate the discussion around the North American project. And just to give you some history on the North American Forum, it's been around since, I believe, 2001, had some 15 or so meetings and some virtual meetings during, during COVID. It has a U.S. home, a Canadian home, and a Mexican home. The Hoover Institution at Stanford has historically been the U.S. home under George Schultz. But Richard and I together have, have, ta have, have moved that U.S. home here, as I think we're, we're really focused, both of us, on uh, integration, globalization, and especially North America. And in some ways, being here on the border, perhaps a little bit more our own focus on, on U.S.-Mexico, if it's, if it's okay to say that. Uh, one thing that came that really struck me from discussions I had in the corridors during the NAF was the preamble of the U.S. Constitution is, of course, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's, that's who we are as Americans. We're about ourselves, about our life, our, our pursuit of happiness. In, in Canada, it's peace, order, and good government. So they're about society. That's why the Canadians are always the, the good ones at the table. And, um, and then we have, we have Mexico, and uh, they're about independence. So I think this is why sometimes it's hard to have these discussions, uh, the, three of, the three of us at the, t at the table. There's also a big asymmetry in size. So these are some of the issues that came up. Just to give you an idea, we, we had sessions on competitiveness, we had sessions on energy cooperation, on climate, um, um, on the politics, and we discussed security. 
as well as diplomacy in the in the region. So to try and figure out what are really the areas where cooperation can have real impact, can really move forward. So with that, let me introduce, we have an excellent panel here of really um, top top diplomats and, and business folk uh, from the, the three countries. So to my far right, we have, although he's not necessarily far right, we have um, Tom uh, Ambassador Thomas Shannon. Um, most recently, he served as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, which is the third highest ranking position in the State Department. He is a career with the person rank of, of career ambassador. Um, um, he also acted as secretary of state for, I think, a few weeks uh, in between ad administrations. So, so comes with lots of uh, State Department uh, diplomatic knowledge. We have Goldie Haider. He's president and chief executive officer of the Business Council of Canada. And this is like the business roundtable, right, in the U.S. It's um, nonprofit, nonpartisan, and it's the CEOs uh, of, uh, of Canada's leading companies, which together employ 1.7 million uh, Canadians across all industries. Um, and then uh, to my left, we have Juan Jose Gomez Camacho, also an ambassador. He's now a senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. You're also welcome to visit GPS if you ever want to come and spend some time here. He was a career diplomat for 34 years, and he served as ambassador to many different countries, and especially relevant here, uh, coming from Mexico, he was ambassador to Canada from 2019 to 2022, and he was also ambassador to the UN, among other places. So let me start with you, Tom, if you can talk to us a bit about the U.S. position and any major takeaways from the NAF discussions we had. Uh, thank, you. <clears throat> thank you very much, Caroline. And uh, I want to thank you and uh, University of California at San Diego and uh, the School for Global Policy and Strategy and Richard Kai and the uh, Institute of the Americas for hosting us today. But a special thank you to Tom Long and to Alan Burson uh, for the presentation of the book North America 2.0. It's a remarkable study uh, that combines tremendous depth with, with tremendous breadth and really does describe uh, the challenges and the opportunities that present themselves to the United States, to Canada, and to Mexico as we seek to continue our journey to understand ourselves as irretrievably linked and part of a larger region, North America, uh, which, while evident to anyone who looks at a map, is not evident to anybody who has managed relationships between these three countries. But what's striking uh, about North America as we know it today, what is striking about what has happened over time with the North American Free Trade Agreement and then with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, Trade Agreement is how uh, the private sectors of the United States, Canada, and Mexico have built not just common, a common market in terms, in terms of trading, and investment and service, but also, as, as Tom Long noted well, a common platform for production and have turned North America 
into one of the most dynamic and interesting uh, uh, manufacturing areas of the world, uh, but also a market of extraordinary potential larger than the European Union. And as my colleagues Goldie and Juan Jose will note, um, this is uh, a moment ripe uh, to return to the idea of North America. When the North American Forum was created in the early part of this century, it was done so in the aftermath of 9-11 and in recognition of the real risk that events like 9-11 presented to the larger relationship between the three countries of North America and how only through engagement where we were going to, to create the, the, the practices of cooperation and collaboration, especially on the security side, that were going to allow us to survive future terrorist attacks or other natural disasters or man-made disasters that threaten the relationships between uh, the three countries. And uh, as we had addressed the issue of risk, we were also looking for ways to build resilience uh, in our economies and in our societies so that we could absorb and survive the kinds of attacks that we experienced on 9-11. But finally, we were looking for ways to establish a legitimate voice because of the, the people who were participating in the North American Forum at the time, which were leading members of our private sector, of our opinion-making society, uh, universities, but also governments. And what we're trying to do here at, the, at the UCSD uh, over the past several days is revitalize and recreate this project, recognizing that although we have not experienced a 9-11 event, uh, in terms of a terrorist attack, we have experienced a pandemic which had a fragmenting and fracturing impact in North America and broadly in the hemisphere. Uh, but, but beyond that, that we are living in an increasingly contested world in which the United States and our partners are going to face very significant security challenges around the world, beginning with the rise of an aggressive China, but also dealing with um, if not the decline, the sideways movement of a revanchist Russia that refuses to go quietly into the night, and the emergence of any number of other regional powers, Turkey, Iran, Japan, Brazil, uh, and beyond, who are intent on asserting a place for themselves in the world and in the process, um, either testing long-standing partnerships with, it, with the United States or building on their adversarial relationship with the United States. And in this kind of global environment, North America becomes important for security, but also for creating a safe space for, for trade and investment. In other words, promoting peace and prosperity in North America actually enhances our ability to operate within our larger hemisphere, but also to address security concerns uh, beyond our, our hemisphere. To a certain extent, the idea of North America helps to create a strategic reserve of sorts in which a common commitment to democracy, common economic understandings, commitment to a market economy, and the belief that trade and investment drives economic growth and drives integration is an important part of our larger strategy to address an increasingly dangerous and, and competitive world. And what we were able to discuss over these past several days, whether it's focusing on making our trading agreements work better and more intelligently, whether it's focusing on common challenges related to energy and climate change, whether it's looking at how we can cooperate diplomatically uh, or the other areas that we touched, I think we've helped 
uh, establish a base conceptually and intellectually that is going to allow us, using works like Tom Long presented today, to, to begin to articulate again to the American people, to the Canadian people, and to the Mexican people the importance of this relationship and why it is in our advantage to focus on it, not only as governments but as societies. Because remember, even as our governments have worked to shape these institutions and look for ways to take advantage of the, the, our proximity and the marbled nature of our economies, it is really our society itself that has driven this project. In many ways, North American integration, as we understand it, is an organic process, almost a natural process, but it's one that's moving too slowly at this point. And so we're looking for ways to accelerate it, looking for ways to highlight and articulate its importance. Thank you so much. I want to stay on the diplomatic side, so I'm going to turn to you last, Goldie, and turn uh, to Juan Jose to talk about the Mexican perspective and where you see the biggest opportunities or challenges for cooperation and kind of what you took uh, from, from the meeting uh, the last couple of days. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline. Um, and thank you to Tom for the presentation of, of that book, and thank you to the other Tom, our friend Tom Shannon, for uh, opening uh, with that wonderful introduction, because not only I agree entirely with that, but it allows me to go to a couple of places. Uh, and I, I start from what he, where he left. It. Uh, the North American integration has been happening organically, and I would add, almost inertially. And in fact, I wouldn't call it a North American integration, but rather two, North, two bilateral integrations, Mexico-US, Mexico Canada-US. That said, that doesn't sound necessarily too positive, the reality is overwhelming. The level of interconnection between the three countries is extraordinary. And let me add it, not only the level of interconnection, the level of interdependence. One thing is to see the North American integration as a plus, as an opportunity that is there, that if we don't take, we miss that opportunity. And another completely different is to understand that the three countries are interdependent. We like it, but even if we didn't like it, we are completely interdependent. What happens in one affects the other two, positively or negatively. Um, and we believe, and this is the, 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 the raison d'etre de este, de this, of, this, of this meeting, is that that needs to be understood. I think one of the more important challenges that we have to continue with this exercise of making this more visible, better understood, is how can we convey, probably that's the word, this energy, this force that is in the reality of the three countries to the more political levels or leadership of the three countries. 
the integration is happening because of what we have been explaining. The question is if we are seeing and how can we help with ideas, with imagination, with weight in this group, our political leaders or the political leaders of the three countries to truly take the baton and provide the political leadership necessary for this integration to go to the next level from an organic, inertial, very important integration to a strategic, well-thought, well-planned, with a longer-term vision by the three countries. Because from moving to, from this inertial or organic side to the more strategic side will depend not only our ability as a region to deal with all the global challenges that my friends have mentioned, but also something very important too, which is our prosperities. It's difficult to say that the U.S.'s prosperity depends in any way from other fairly smaller countries compared to the U.S., Canada and Mexico. But you know what? That's the truth. And the numbers that we've seen here in terms of trade, value chains, employment, all the interconnections, and I insist interdependence, between the three countries show that. That also the U.S.'s prosperity, not only security, but prosperity, depends on the North American integration. I don't need to make the case for Canada and for Mexico. It's absolutely evident. And in the case of Mexico, I can be even more emphatic. Mexico's future, Mexico's prosperity, Mexico's ability to make the next or the, to move up the next steps in the ladder, as we hope as, as Mexicans, really very much depend also in this integration. So the, the idea of the group is to provide these ideas, again, or I'm sorry for the repetition, imagination, being creative, being constructive, being pragmatic, and trying to be as influential as we can. This is a, a group with very interesting people, very important people, very people with lots of ideas and possibilities, and we will see how we can, can, can take this forward. There is a sort of a, a new, a good momentum happening in the region in terms of this North American conversation, which is that the three administrations decided after years of not happening to reconvene the so-called, you remember, the Three Amigos Summit that restarted last December uh, in Washington and now will take place sometime in most likely in January in Mexico City. There is already an agenda uh, amongst the three countries. At least at the institutional level, the issues are there. Health security, someone mentioned COVID. Health security is critical. We realized COVID showed us not only that we needed to work together, but the cost, the brutality of the cost of not working together. Health security in the region is strategic because health is economic, is society, is future. So we need to ensure that North America is secure in terms of health. So 
there you go, and they realize, and it is there in the agenda, and the institutions are working. Value chains or supply chains, climate change and environment, immigration. How can we make uh, the transition from seeing an, a problem to be managed, which is very, very complex, to labor mobility and human capital? for North America is central. And there's abundant this capital. The question is how can we distribute it properly in the, in the region? Security, violence, drug trafficking, weapons, all these things are critical for the future of the region, and I insist, of the three countries. So all this is happening now. The three countries are discussing at the institutional level I'm very optimistic from what I have seen uh, so far. So this is the time where now all of us, from the non-government capacity, from the private sector capacity, with these ideas to come, to help, to try to push them in the positive way to do it. And, and at least me, I'm very, very optimistic that this will happen. Thank you so much. And you really highlighted how important North America is for growth and development and economic prosperity in Mexico. So I think that's a perfect segue to hear from Goldie, who talks to folks in the seat suite and can tell us about uh, the, the perspective from Canada uh, on both North American integration as well as our discussions over the last few days. I thought you were going to set it up as the undiplomatic version of what you've just heard. So uh, that may turn out to be true after all. Well, look, thank you, Caroline, and, and to you and Richard uh, for hosting us, for Tom and Alan for the presentation of their books, to all of you for attending here and virtually, and particularly my esteemed colleagues whom I'm humbled to be uh, sharing a panel with. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting conversation that we had over the course of the, of the last day and a half. And as you mentioned, I spend most of my time in the C-suites of Canada uh, representing about 175 CEOs who, for the most part, are large global companies and or certainly large North American companies and definitely uh, in Canada and the United States. So uh, there's a lot of anxiety in those, uh, in those C-suites. You know, I'm thinking of the old, um, the old Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. What many fail to remember is that it's meant as a curse that you actually want to live in godforsaken boring times. And we haven't had any of those in a long time, have we, Tom? And so there's a lot of anxiety uh, in the C-suites because what you're seeing is uh, capital likes stability, predictability, confidence, uh, social cohesion, a sense of, uh, of a belief that if I do X, Y will happen and that I can plan on that happening for a long period of time. But today, if you look around the world, there's a lot of instability. There's regulatory risk, there's political risk, there's environmental risk, uh, there's uh, labor uh, risks, there's geographic risks, there's, there's just a multitude of risks all around us. And so it's not surprising that uh, capital's frozen for the most part. There are hundreds of billions of dollars of capital sitting in the pockets of Canadian businesses, U.S. businesses, and worldwide, it'll be probably well past uh, hundreds of billions, if not in the trillion plus range. And that's because they don't know what to do with it. We've seen war break out. Uh, we have seen the, the devolution, so-called devolution, take place, um, uh, or some elements of that are starting to take shape, and maybe not after this week, between the United States and China. 
we have seen the near-death experience that represented the USMCA. I mean, I thought it was ironic, the point that I hadn't even observed before, which we couldn't even agree what to call the thing. Uh, thank God we all got through it. Uh, I, I think we should just call it NAFTA 2.0 or new NAFTA or something like that. But um, it's telling that when you can't get you know, the United States, Canada, and Mexico in the backdrop of everything that's going on in the world to find a way to, to not go through that kind of an experience. I mean, I'm coming from a country that was called a national security threat by you in the United States. Uh, we've been called a lot of things in Canada, mostly nice, but definitely not a national security threat. Uh, and certainly not because we have, you know, have been allegedly allowing coal to be dumped in from China, which there was no ever evidence and I don't think ever happened. But it, it was a surreal time for us as Canada because it represented an existential threat. Uh, we have 75% of our eggs in one basket. Now, that's on us. Uh, it used to be 85, so we're going in the right direction. And with all due respect, I'd love to get it to 65 soon rather than later because we've got to diversify. That doesn't mean we have to shrink our presence in the United States. It actually means we've just got to grow our presence in other parts of the world. And uh, our minister is uh, on the verge of announcing our foreign minister and our, uh, the new Indo-Pacific uh, strategy, and that will allow us to do, as you're seeing in the G20 and others, uh, remind everybody that Canada is not only a North American nation, but is also, like the United States and Mexico, a Pacific nation. And so we're, we're diversifying um, uh, our trade in that context. But obviously the United States of America and Mexico uh, remain a very important uh, element of, of, uh, of our economic well-being, our political well-being, and our social well-being. So when you think about it, uh, in many ways the conversation that we're having here in, in San Diego, we're late to the game. And what's that game? The game is, for, for some period of time now, uh, the world has been breaking down into blocks. People didn't think Europe could function as, as, as one entity. And outside of the UK, they found a way to do it. And they're surviving through all the iterations, whatever they're facing, including, uh, more recently, unfortunately, the war that's taking place. And so you see that. You see what's happening in Asia. I mean, uh, Tom had the, the slide up there of the RCEP agreement. Most people missed it. It happened during COVID, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, 30% of global GDP, 30 plus, uh, and 30% of, of, uh, of global population wrapped up in the largest trade deal ever. Uh, it's not just a Chinese trade deal. It's a trade deal that includes democracies, including a country like Australia. And we're not a part of it. And so, but you can see the, 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 how that's come together. Uh, the TPP is yet another example of a trade deal. Originally came from, from the United States, and, and we'd love to have you back in it, but it's growing. And there are a number of countries that want in, uh, from, uh, from Korea to, to Taiwan, to the United Kingdom, and yes, even China. And our view is, so long as you meet the high standards of the TPP, which is really a gold standard trade agreement, you're you know, welcome, to the, welcome to the TPP. Um, which brings me to the fact, and I didn't mention Africa or Latin America, everybody is in some way, shape, or form a block in their minds, even if it's not happening in practice, right? But not here. Here, for some reason, we function as me, myself, and I. And there are really three entities, and we, we, we have had challenges to make this work. And my view is, is that uh, if we don't, we will fall behind. If we don't realize that there is strength in numbers, if we don't realize that a strong North America, not just a strong America, a strong North America, an, an America that is made stronger because Mexico is strong and because Canada is strong, strengthens the whole. We're only as, as strong as the weakest uh, part of our link. And there's no point having a weak link when there's only three of us. Uh, that'll unravel us very quickly. So if we can build some consensus on what a strong North America brings to the equation, and I think we have a lot to bring. This moment, today, 
is largely about three things around the world in terms of demand. Um, I hope I don't have a Rick Perry moment here, but energy, <laughs> right? We need energy. The world needs energy. The world needs food. And the world needs critical minerals. And we got a lot of that. In fact, together, we could do a lot. We could build the infrastructure that, is being, that other countries uh, are, are counting on us to build so that we can export these items, many of which are now connected to helping countries get their emissions down from a climate change perspective, which, as I mentioned, is an ongoing uh, threat that was there pre-COVID, will be there long after um, this pandemic. And so the opportunity for North America is to play to our strengths. Uh, we're a welcoming society. Uh, the immigration that occurs in the United States and, 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 uh, and Canada in particular is the envy of many parts of the world. We take a different approach to it uh, in terms of your lottery system versus our point system. But it's worked. You have a mosaic. Uh, we have a mosaic. You have a, a melting pot model, but to each their own. We found a way to make it work. And many of the smartest people in the world want to call Canada or the United States home from an immigration perspective. Together, uh, we have a, long, a big labor force. Uh, together, we bring to the, to, the, to the global arena a lot of uh, innovation capacity. Smart people live here. And smart people are the ones that are going to make the determination of how to address some fundamental issues of our time. Do you know that, for the most part, companies making net zero commitments today, many of them are just being forced to do it because it's kind of like, let me just get this out of the way. They don't know how they're going to do it. You know what they know? They know they're probably how to get rid of 50% of the emissions that they've committed to reduce. But the other 50% is probably going to come from technology and innovation we don't even know today. And so where's that going to come from? If not us, who? Why not us? So let's play to our strengths and let's not have silly uh, you know, territorial disputes, small balls around dairy or softwood or other, other issues when the competition is not from within. The competition is outside of North America. So if we don't get our act together, we will record this moment as yet another moment where we let opportunity pass us by. And the other parts of the world are not waiting. They're not even watching. They're just doing their growth is phenomenal. And we have to ask ourselves, where is growth going to come from in North America? Because the, the thing that keeps me up at night is kind of a, a double-edged sword here. On the one hand, I have an incredible sense of confidence in we the people. I, I really think Canadians, Americans, and Mexicans at the core left to themselves to discuss, to debate, and yes, disagree, more often than not will give you the right answer. They'll give you the right answer. But if you don't give them that, that sense of optimism and that hope and that alternative, um, you run the risk of having what happened with the election of President Trump. Uh, I'm not in a partisan role, but I will say that he didn't construct the parade that elected him president. He found it. He gave them identity. He gave them voice. And he said the three most powerful words to that group, which is, I see you. I see you. And, and today, rational, reasonable people will fight for that cause because we haven't given them something else in the window. And so the flip side of this for me is, is that um, we need to make sure that we're creating the environment uh, in which the, the, the populism that's emerging in all of our countries in some way, shape, or form uh, doesn't find a home to grow. And the only way you can do that is by having long-term economic growth and sharing of that growth and that prosperity and addressing the inclusivity and diversity and all the things that everybody talks about. But it comes from growth. And today, I don't believe we have an integrated strategy on in how we're going to grow a North American economy. Which brings me to my last point. And that is that we can't do everything 
everything seems like a priority these days. Everybody wants to do everything. That's the spirit of inclusivity and diversity. Let's do everything. No, governing is about making choices. And unfortunately, sometimes the choices you make are hard. And we're going to have to sit down and we're going to have to say to ourselves, as we look forward, one of the next risks that are reemerging in our, in our horizon here is actually the imminent renewal of the agreement that just, I just spoke about in 2026 when USMCA has to be either renewed or will now revert to annual reviews. Imagine what that would do to your markets and capital and innovation capacity and all that. It would just, it would, there'd be a chill and people would go somewhere else. So how do you avoid that? The challenge is 2024 is in between now and 2026. And so it's very difficult to figure out what is 2026 going to be about. And that's what we spent a lot of our time I'm setting it up to like the, the, the crux of the moment here for us is what do we do about what really is the existential threat for all of us, which is if, if USMCA either implodes in some, NAFTA, whatever you want to call it, implodes in some way, shape or form, uh, or goes through yet another iteration of some kind of a near-death experience where we're all just saying whatever it takes to keep the thing going, and we end up with some diluted agreement that doesn't really strengthen the competitiveness of North America, we may get a deal, but we may have weakened ourselves uh, through that process. So what do we have to do? What do we have to do as civil society? What do we have to do as academics? What do we have to do as labor movements? What do we do have to do as ac- academics? What do we have to do as diplomats? What do we have to do as businesses to create the winning conditions for, at the very least, a renewal of the new NAFTA so we can get past that moment without much uh, uh, hysteria or adversity or, or self-inflicted harm, or, or ideally, we can do what we failed to do the last time we had this conversation, which is to look at an agreement that hadn't been spoken about for 25 years, and we had a chance to modernize it. We had a chance to bring it to, to, to the modern era of saying this thing called the Internet came since 1988, NAFTA, uh, the free trade agreement was done, or even the 93 NAFTA agreement was done. We didn't really get that. We scratched the surface on digital chapter and so forth. We have a competitiveness chapter in the, in the, in the USMCA agreement that's basically a, a, a skeleton. Great opportunity for us to do something about it as leaders again. So last point I'll say is so that it doesn't look like I'm only dishing out the blame. We as business community uh, right across North America have spent a lot of time, pre-COVID even, retrospectively saying, what is our role in the construct of the the gong show that became the the USMCA? And part of that was a recognition that, you know what, we didn't do a lot to, to remind people the trade is good. Trade has now become a dirty word. You don't even call it trade here. It's called a framework now. It's some new word that means something else. Uh, You know, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework comes to mind. And so we can't allow that to continue. And so we as business leaders have tried to say to, to, to our constituency, starting with our own employees, spreading it out to our community, spreading it out to our shareholders and others, trade is good. Trade is a force for good. And we need to go back out and remind people that it's trade that allowed you to have an increase in your quality of life, your standard of living, your access to cheap technology, your access to cheaper cars. All of these things came about due to trade agreements. If they weren't there and protectionism ran, ran, ran rampant, you would have a poor quality of life and a poor standard of living and you couldn't afford the things that you have. So we've got to do a better job of telling that story, but we won't be able to do it alone. And that's why I enjoy participating in forums like this because... To me, getting the narrative to be consistent about why it's good is going to be equally important in a world in which everybody can go wherever they want to get their news. 
But if all of us, you know, let's say smart people, are trying to put out there the common narrative of why trade is a force for good, then maybe we can have an, an adult conversation about the renewal of USMCA and North America's place in a much more complicated world. Thank you so much. And, you know, we talked about China being sort of the uninvited guest to NAFTA. And it also became the uninvited guest to the blowback against NAFTA in the sense that had it not been for China and the effect it had on communities and parts of the U.S., um, the blowback against trade would be less, but it really got conflated with NAFTA, that the pressure from NAFTA was much, much less than the pressure from China. Overall, trade is good. It raises incomes. It increases varieties. Um, it was responsible for the very low level of goods inflation we had during that period of, of hyperglobalization. So, so certainly the economic rationale makes a lot of sense. I want to I turn back to Tom because I think both from the Canadian and Mexican point of view where 70-plus percent of exports go to U.S. and there is some dependency there, um, in, in some sense, the renewal is, is more um, likely. It's Washington that's become probably the question mark. And I guess the question is, is the economic argument stronger, you think, in Washington or the security argument? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> Saying that we need minerals, we need energy... Well, they're both strong, but for different reasons. Um, the economic argument is strong for political reasons, because economic growth, and, and actually, the, you know, as Juan Jose noted, I mean, Americans probably still do not understand how dependent we are for our prosperity on Mexico and Canada, and how marbled our economies are right now, and that absent... Um, uh, Mexico and Canada, we, we would have a very different kind of lifestyle. And this is why USMCA survives, because President Trump originally was intent on ending NAFTA. But his own team convinced him that that would destroy them politically because of the economic impact it would have uh, in huge markets and in states that had largely voted for him. And this is why USTR Lighthizer, along with others in the administration, were given the task of renegotiating it and producing the USMCA. So that's the economic side. But on the security side, this is for real. Uh, our ability to have access to critical minerals, our ability to have secure uh, supply chains, our ability to be able to produce sensitive technologies in environments that are friendly to us, and that are not going to interfere with, with the trade and movement of these sensitive uh, technologies is uh, something that's going to be hugely important for us. I mean, if you just think back to the pandemic and realize the panic that set in once people realized that what we needed to protect our own population, we couldn't get because it wasn't being produced anywhere near us. Uh, and this is true today. If you were to look at where most of the pharmaceutical goods that we use on a regular basis are either produced or where their ant antecedents are produced, you'd be surprised. Because um, it's nowhere near any drugstore here in San Diego. Um, and, and so I, I would just argue that um, uh, the economic and the political side is important. But um, in Washington, as, 
as members of Congress, as members of the executive branch, and also members of our, our, of our military community, our intelligence community, and our diplomatic community begin to understand um, better what this 21st century is going to look like, uh, the, um, the security side arguments are going to become increasingly important. Go ahead. I just want to pick up on a couple of things that Tom said so I can hammer home a couple of uh, key points as we look forward. One is policies never matter as much as it does now. The policy choices that we make are going to be critical to our capacity to attract both the capital and the talent because there's never been more options for capital and talent. Don't kid yourself. It will find another home. They will find another home, and they often do. So we've got to make sure we get the policy right. So when we talk about the drug policies and we talk about uh, some of the things that, that we used to have, uh, we lost sight of the fact that we, as cancer, we made policy choices that said we're not willing to give you the data protection that you need for the research that you're doing and the length of time that you're asking for it to be able to recover your R&D. And when you made those choices, the message was you leave us no choice but to go somewhere else where I can recover those costs of doing the R&D. And yes, make some money because that actually isn't a crime. That's something I'm trying to do. And that's what happened. So when we were all uh, you know, in a tizzy about why isn't America sending us vaccines and why can't we get more vaccines and vaccines and vaccines at the same time you're trying to stop masks from coming into the country, we should look at ourselves. We were making vaccines in Canada once upon a time. The policy choices we made had the effect exactly what we said would happen when those decisions were made. But the short-termism behind that decision was popular thing to do for an election or something and away those companies went. So when you drive that capital away and you drive that investment away, I'm sorry, you don't get the stuff first. You may not even get it second or third. And that's what happens. So policy matters. It's a conscious choice that we need to make. The second thing, and this is a connected point, is um, we have to be mindful of the customer here. So the customer is a voter. Uh, The customer is a constituent. The customer has a lot of different hats that they wear. And the customer will decide what they want for something. So take Europe, for example. Everybody was big on climate change. We're going to do renewables. We're going to turn off coal plants. We're going to turn off even nuclear, which makes no sense to me. Um, and we're going, to get, we're going to just do wind and solar and all of that. They proceeded with that experiment that was very short-lived. Natural gas prices go up 500%. And the customer goes, well, yeah, climate's important, but not as important as the fact that I can't afford my heat. So let's get rid of that little experiment and turn back on coal, turn back on the nuclear and other stuff. And so this is a reminder to us. We can't get too far ahead of our public. If we get too far ahead of our public, there's a slingshot effect back, especially in democracies, particularly in democracies, that actually sets you back. So we need to be responsible in how we communicate to our public that, you know what, for us to do certain things, it's going to end up costing you more. But in order for us to make sure you're okay with that, we're going to grow our economy. We're going to make the policy choices that allow us to grow our economy, grow our GDP, raise our standard of living, raise our quality of life, because those are policy choices we can make to do it. The risk here is that populism will create more protectionism, and protectionism is the wrong answer. So when I hear phrases like friendshoring and nearshoring coined by Secretary Yellen and our own Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Deputy uh, uh, Christian Freeland, I, I don't mind the cons- concept of friendshoring and nearshoring, of democracies working together and having reliable access to key ingredients for your pharmaceutical products, for healthcare crises, or for, for other things like energy security and so forth. But it cannot be a synonym or a res- for protectionism, because protectionism 
is going to drive up your costs again for the customer. And the customer is going to say, why is my iPad 3000 bucks? Oh, because we're making it in, in Utah. Well, I don't care where it's made. I want it for one. <laughs> and as soon as that happens, bye-bye experiment, right? So we've got to pick and choose very wisely and very selectively what is actually national security issues that we want to make sure we have built our supply chains and have the integrity of the supply uh, there versus just bring everything home. We're not going to be able to bring everything home. A ventilator has 1,400 parts. Assuming a ventilator is required for the next health crisis, which probably won't be because it'll be something else, do you really think we can make a ventilator by ourselves? And the answer is no. So I I think we have to be very careful to be dismissing trade and globalization and multilateralism just because it's so yesterday. It's still very much very tomorrow. We've got to revive it and resuscitate it, you know, put lipstick on it if you like, but Make sure people understand this is good for you. The alternative is very bad for you. And I don't think people understand that. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, friend shoring coined by Janet Yellen. In the same week, which really highlights the security versus economy kind of trade-off, in the same week she talked about friend shoring, she talked about reducing the tariffs on China to fight inflation because it would, there are studies showing that reducing those tariffs would, would, would reduce in inflationary pressures. But these policies are exactly, of course, contradictory. So um, there is a recognition of the reality, reality of trade on economic fundamentals and, and growth and resource allocation, et cetera. But um, there's also this very popular view towards nearshoring and friendshoring and, and reshoring, et, et cetera. I want to open it up to any questions you have. Yes. Just on one thing. I, with a risk to look or sound naive, but I'll take the risk. Personally, I'm, I wouldn't, I'm not too concerned yet with the famous sunset clause. I still don't see it as a challenge, let alone as an existential threat. It is there. Whether we like it or not, I don't like it, but it's there. We will have to to go through it. But my impression is that somehow, with everything you have said, both of you have said, which is very real, somehow we are past we're past that debate. I might be entirely wrong, but somehow I think we have. Somehow, if not only political rationality, that's always more challenging, reality itself will impose. And I have to say something. I I agree with you, uh, uh, Goldie, on the logic of the private sector. But I like to see a private sector that is also, like you do, strong, express its voice, express, expresses its logic for the integration, pursues the integration, and speaks loud to the three governments that this is the right thing to do, not only because it's right, because it's also the most rational economic thing for the three countries' prosperity in the future. 
and I'm with Century Partners. I'm co-chair of something called the Smart Border Coalition here in San Diego. And I was just going to share maybe two lines of thought. One, as a North America trading block, we did it right. Europe did it wrong, in my judgment. And China is doing it differently. But we did it right in the sense that uh, we have a rail grid that goes from Canada to Mexico and you can double stack containers and take them anywhere <laughs> except for San Diego and Tijuana, which the smart border is going to fix somehow, some way. But our rail grid is a phenomenal uh, infrastructure competitive advantage that not enough people are talking about, number one. Number two, just on that trading block, uh, we have three countries, three sovereign countries. It's not like Europe. Uh, and the England situation where the English felt like the Europeans were trying to govern England. We did it better. And three is the labor markets. And uh, in the EU, you've got complete mobility of labor, which is causing great tension. And, uh, and then number four is the currencies. You've got three floating currencies here, not a single currency, which some of the players over in Europe are not playing by the correct rules. And uh, I think we've got the mechanics for long-term competitive advantage right here, right now, despite the U.S. MCA going backwards. And then the second line of thought. Here we are in San Diego and Tijuana, what I consider the smartest regions <laughs> in the world. And, uh, you know, we took the mobile phone and, and put Qualcomm's chips in it and made it a smartphone that everybody is now using. And, uh, uh, but we've got a, what I would call a dumb border. It used to be the world's largest border. It's now just the Western Hemisphere's largest border. 100,000 people a day. 4,000 trucks a day. Takes two to three hours a day. That tax is impossible for the benefits of the economics for both sides. And uh, this, the old Sandag study said that we're losing $7 billion a year. And if you divide that by 7 million people in the region per year, that's a $1,000 per year loss. If we could fix the border, make it, take it from dumb to smart, every man and child and lady and child would get a $1,000 raise if those numbers were correct. It, it, it's... We're, we're dealing with uh, really something easy to fix if mm -hmm. we start working together. And uh, we at the Smart Border are going to try to be committed to getting this thing fixed. Thank you. Question for the, the panelists. We've um, spent time talking about the ways that um, our three countries can work more closely together. I want to see if you can maybe comment on opportunities um, for public diplomacy so we can bring our citizens together in a proactive way towards this vision of a uh, more unified North America. So please go ahead um, and react to both questions and, and comments, and then I'm afraid I'm going to have to close because I have to run to another event. Um, so any, Tom, do you have any 
last comments you want to make? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, thank you very much. Well, one last comment that I should have made at the beginning is that you can get this book for free on, online from the Wilson Center site, and if you're watching on TV, you might even be able to scan that and, and get a hold of the book. I should have made my last pitch. But I, I think the, this question about comparative models for the region is, is a really important one. Uh, as uh, someone who lives in, in the UK uh, and, and has a Spanish wife, so is deeply affected by Brexit, uh, I, you know, I, I am uh, less uh, ready to say that Europe has the, the wrong model, but I think it's important to say that there is not one size fits all uh, model for regionalism, and I don't think the EU model would fit in North America, in part because we're three countries with really big uh, asymmetries, um, very federal countries, right? So we have different subnational organizations of politics, and we have different, different economies. Um, you know, and, and I thank you for your work on the smart border, though I spent three hours at the border on Sunday <laughs> trying to get back in. So I should have checked the Smart Border Coalition's website a little bit earlier, I think. Um, but but I, I think that's, that's a crucial point, right? Um, that we have uh, allowed some of our competitive advantages as a region to fade away because we've made trade and services trade. I mean, if you think about that for services trade, it's, it's incredibly uh, counterproductive, right? Um, so, so I think we need to think about what the models are that we, can, that we can adapt to our region. What are the ways we can deal with asymmetries, federal systems, different, different types of, of, of economies? Um, and I'll leave it there. Thank you. Any final remarks? Yeah, on the... On, on the question of, is here, right? I'm sorry. On the public diplomacy, one, one, um, something many of us have reflected on and, and discussed in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico is this notion of a North American identity. Whether Mexicans, Americans and Canadians, after feeling Canadians, Americans, or Mexicans, consider themselves as North Americans, that belong to North America, and that, sh that share a North American set of values with all the different necessary differences, set of culture, and all that. This is very difficult to think about, even more so to try to build it. But that said, it's really remarkable to see in the three countries, of course much less between Canada and Mexico, but overall in the three countries, the amazing social and cultural integration that is happening there as well. People do not realize how close they are. Let me tell you just a quick anecdote, but in many ways explains this, and I think it happens for Canada too. One of our consuls in the U.S. years ago, one day came to us and said, now I understood that we are integrating. Because I was with my wife in the supermarket. This is a, not a border town, eh? In the north, in a really atypical place. And when walking on the aisles, suddenly there was an American woman making a big, big fuss because there were no tortillas 
that day. <laughs> this that sounds like a joke is amazingly true. There is already this North American identity slowly, quietly happening. What can we do to foster that in a more smart, planned way? I think the three governments have to work much, much harder in connecting the people. The integration, the real integration of the three countries will never happen just by, by the governments. It'll happen with the private sector, and it'll happen by the people. And the people, on that part, I can, I think this is the best place to see it, but I think it applies to the three, is happening. Uh, the, the, the connections between human beings, North America, the people of North America, are just absolutely extraordinary. On that camp, we have it easier, because it's happening. We need policies, but it's happening. I must say, I've never heard anybody ever say to me, I'm so proud to be North American, ever. And that's, that's maybe a branding issue, maybe a, 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 something as simple as that, that we should be proud to be North American. But you see, you don't represent North America in the Olympics, right? North America doesn't have a team. North America doesn't play in the World Cup. And so that, that's that lack of belonging to an entity that, that we live in. Plus, as Canadians, uh, full disclosure, we're a bit ambidextrous on this, right? Like we're, we're American when we want to be and, 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 and Commonwealth when we need to be, right? And uh, we can kind of have it both ways. And so, plus, you have a very multicultural society where many of us are just, so I came from where I came from. So my identity is, is, is a different kind of by, by, you know, by uh, 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 two identities instead of, uh, instead of one. So I, I think we have to look for ways in which we can uh, remind Canadians and Americans and Mexicans that the game that's afoot here is very much about a global battle uh, between blocks, between regions. Some are it's maybe friendly rivalries with Europe or it may be competitive with parts of Asia or in communist countries. And that a Team North America attitude, a Team North America approach would serve us better from a quality of life standard of living perspective because we would be able to help grow our economy. And I keep coming back to that because we've been so enthralled with all kinds of other issues for the last decade or so because we could be. But brass tacks is people want to know, you know, how am I getting food on my table tonight? Do I have a job tomorrow morning? Can I buy a home? Can my kids go to school? And if we lose that, then you get more populism. So I think we have to be cognizant about that. And secondly, I think we definitely need to be, uh, I don't have an answer to the public diplomacy question because I'm not sure that's the right answer. I think what's more important, uh, and maybe this is my PR background, but we're in a world of narratives. The environment in which we operate is who owns the narrative? You know, and whether the narrative is a simple hashtag, you know, make America great again or something versus the, the, the broader narrative of why trade is good or business is a force for good or anything else, why education matters. These things are all under attack. And I think we have to reclaim the facts. Uh, you, you're not allowed to have your own facts. You cannot have alternate facts. And we are living in a world where people can say whatever they want. And so maybe the diplomacy that's necessary here that binds people together is to remind them of the power of the truth. And, and, and that comes from being able to defend your beliefs in trade at a time and when it's not the cool thing to do. Right? I think that if we can help, I do believe that the vast, that the majority of North Americans have been silenced. That they're actually pragmatic, sensible, intelligent people who are afraid to speak out in the world in which we operate today. That the extremes are dominating our 
social media and our television and our, and our discourse. When, and the proof of that is in Canada, last point, we've had seven elections, uh, federal elections in the last little while here, five minorities, and in every election the, the vote's going down. There's a hollowing out of the middle when Canadians are, as my father likes to say, a people of the radical middle. And so if you don't see yourself reflected in your politics, if you don't see the choice, you just withdraw. I think it's how do we find those people and restore their confidence, restore their hope, and allow them to be able to speak the truth. And if we don't do it, how do we expect them to do it? Ambassador Shannon, last word. It'll be short. Um, In Spanish, Americans are called norteamericanos. They're called North Americans. We might not call ourselves North Americans, but Mexicans call us North Americans. Central Americans call us North Americans. So I'll buy that. But uh, in terms of public diplomacy, the biggest thing we have on our horizon is the World Cup of 2026, which will be played in all three countries. Uh, And this is a wonderful opportunity to remind people uh, of how connected we are and to speak of ourselves uh, as North American. But thank you all very much. Thank you all, and thank you, Tom. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.